You know what, guys? Nowadays, it's surprisingly easy to create your own website, blog, or online store. With Weebly, you can bring your vision to life so easily. Anyone at any skill level can build a fully functional website with Weebly. Whether you're a beginner or a professional, the interface is fun to use and there is no coding required. Weebly was created for people with the courage to start their own business and the dream to be their own boss. Again, you don't need to be a web designer or know how to code to build a beautiful website, blog, or online store. Weebly has a wide variety of professionally designed, mobile-friendly themes to choose from. Simply drag and drop to quickly build and publish your site. And you can truly customize, update, and change your site anytime you want from any device. Join the over 30 million people who are already dreaming big with Weebly. Get started today for free at weebly.com slash crush. That's W-E-E-B-L-Y dot com slash crush. Weebly.com slash crush. And again, that mess is free. All right, everybody, welcome to another installment of The Crush. Hey, let's actually, I, should, I should actually rename the show to The Crush. I, I like that. Uh, innovation Crush, guys, in case you're tuning in for the first time ever, this show covers all things innovation, ideas, creativity, especially with a little bit of a business tent on the lens, if you will. Um, and we've managed to talk to some amazing guests over the course of the years. And today, uh, we are lucky to have my man, David Pogue. Say hello, David. Well, hello, David. Well, hello, David. I love those vaudevillian uh, humors. Vaudevillian humors. Um, that, that joke just never gets old. It does never get old. It's, it's, it's almost up there with like, that's what he said. So, <laughs> or she said, depending on, you know, whichever one goes. How are you doing today? How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. Glad yeah. we worked this out. I am too. I am too. All right. So for those of uh, those, the people who may not know, why don't you give them the little bit of a 90 second version of who David Pogue is? Well, David Pogue is a uh, technology and science writer and TV host, uh, New York Times, Yahoo Tech, Scientific American, CBS Sunday Morning, and Nova on PBS. And I write books and I don't sleep much. And you do, you do a great job of it all, even and probably including the not sleeping. But I mean, <laughs> you know, your, your track record definitely speaks for itself. Um, I, th- I found out something pretty interesting about you, um, as, uh, which kind of drove some extra curiosity is this music background of yours, um, especially for like you, you should have been a third generation lawyer. But, but instead found music and then found journalism. Kind of like walk us through that, like that path. Yeah, you're right. I, I started out as a music nerd. I was really, really into musicals from a young age. I used to write little shows for the local uh, children's theater in Cleveland. And uh, I wrote a musical every year in college. And I went to New York for the express purpose of becoming a Broadway composer after college. Uh, I spent 10 years banging my head on that closed door. Um, I did. Uh, I conducted shows to, to kill time while I waited for the world to discover my genius at composition, uh, did arranging and played the piano in pit orchestras and conducted. Uh, so it was, it was a long, slow crossover between the Broadway days and the writing days. Um, the, the short version is that there was a piece of sheet music software that I really, really wanted, uh, called finale. It's still around. Uh, but it cost a thousand dollars in those days, and I I couldn't afford it. So uh, your big musician salary didn't cover your your thousand <laughs> yeah. dollar tab on your software. Thousand dollars for a 
three and a half inch box. <laughs> no, I, I couldn't see it. So um, at the time, I was involved with the uh, with the New York Mac Users Group uh, Computer Club, and the editor of our of our newsletter one day said, "Well, you know what you should do? You should contact the company that makes that software you want and tell them you're a reviewer, and they will have to send you a free copy." And I'm like. <laughs> It's that easy, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, so I did, and and then and that's how the whole thing began. I started writing to companies to get free software and and writing about them, and then I I wound up doing that for you know computer magazines for thirteen years, and then and then the New York Times came a calling in in two thousand. So a very uh, selfish beginning, as opposed to a humble beginning. You're like. I'm going to get all this free shit. Let me just keep writing letters to, uh, uh, about products. Pure greed, my friend. Pure greed. <laughs> um, and, and how did you, f- like, you know, because I would assume, like, as a from a musical talent and a musical passion, you know, obviously to shift that, uh, what was it that you fell in love with about the tech reviewing, you know, journalistic side of your career as it is now? Well, that's sort of an interesting question because I'm not really a technical person, uh, much to the fury of of uh, you know the the, the trolls online. Um, I you know I couldn't. I've never done that thing of taking a PC apart or, or building one. I've never written code. Um, my my first computer was a Mac, and my first interest in it was creative, you know, Mac Paint and and music software and stuff like that. So. I, I come at the technology writing thing from the point of view of the non-technical person, I guess you'd say. Um, so for sure, it's a, it's an acquired taste. It's a it's a certain target demographic, and it is not for the professional technical people that I write. Um, so I guess I, I you know the the actual key to me. I, I'm just realizing this now. Uh, thank you, Doctor Denson, therapist. I- Hey man, no, no problem. No, I was, I my bills in the mail. <laughs> I'm just realizing now my other interest, my whole life was magic. So I used to love bewitched and, uh, you know, uh, I dream of genie and stuff on TV. And I, I did magic shows as a teenager for birthday parties and stuff. And I think my, my interest in, in great technology is that that's the closest we're ever going to get to real magic. So I can, I can pull out my phone uh, in San Francisco and change the thermostat of my home in Connecticut. You know, that's, that's pretty magical. Um, I can, you know, take a picture of something and, you know, my wife has it in three seconds, hundreds of miles away. So I think that's probably it. I think it's that ability to wave my hand and something incredible happens. Um, that is, that is pretty incredible. And you're right. I mean, you know, I always like to think that if, you know, a couple of generations ago could see what we're doing today. <laughs> it, it, it would definitely be like witchcraft. Like, you know, people would be burned at the stake. They for... would fall down and worship us. <laughs> now you just need to build a time machine, go back become an emperor of the world. And, you know, then you've got, you've got your next uh, iteration of your career all, all worked out. <laughs> right. Um, no, I think you hit on something really interesting is that, you know, kind of your, um, uh, the nucleus of you, at least as a, as a personality has in the tech space has been from the perspective of a user. I think a lot of times, you know, uh, it's, it's almost like you're preaching to the choir, like the technology and innovation community is speaking to one another. And then you come along and you're like, you're just a curious person about how things work and not necessarily like the, the techie geek, like you said, taking apart the computer. Um, when did you realize that that was resonating really well? 
Well, during my Broadway days in the late 80s and early 90s, um, I would, I mean, you know, Broadway is a strange career. It's very intermittent. You know, you're working on a show for six weeks really intensely as you rehearse it. And then the show opens and most of the time it flops. I mean, most most Broadway shows flop instantly. So uh, then you're unemployed until you get another show. So I tried to fill the gap by teaching people to use their computers. I would make house calls. Um, and I have to say, whatever skill I have at explaining tech to people was probably honed during that era because it's, it was a real-time lesson in how to explain things to people who didn't get it. You know, I would sit next to these, these clients in their homes and, you know, I'd say, now open the menu. And they're like, what? Takeout menu? Chinese? What? No, no, no. Oh, 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 I should have said these words at the top of the screen. Those are called menus, you know. And so I, I learned in real time what a non-technical person gets and doesn't get. That's fantastic. Um, you, I, I, you mentioned, you know, these Broadway shows that you're putting on or just working in that industry would flop. Um, there's an interesting line in your Wikipedia page where, you know, among other topics that you're known to speak on is this idea of why products fail. Um, have you have you been able to codify like how do you summarize that? Like what are, what are some of the principles that you say this this is why this product doesn't work? Um, whether it's a, a Broadway musical or this, you know, the Nokia line of phones. Rest yeah, peace. that's one of my favorite topics. I actually um for one glorious semester I I taught a course in this in this topic at Columbia Business School. Um I think that um a, a large part a part of of things that people overlook um happens during the creation process internally. In other words, um within the company, first of all, if it's a dog product, everybody realizes that this is their paycheck. And they are not going to raise their hand and say, um, guys, this idea is terrible. So everybody kind of keeps their mouth shut. And that, that was a lesson also from Broadway, if you think about it, because we'd all be working on a, on a show that we all knew was a turkey. And we'd show up, <laughs> we'd show up every day. But what are we going to do? Uh, director, this show sucks. I mean, we're not going to do that because right. it's our job. So there's a lot of you know, internal pressure to, to keep going. Um, there are, I'll I'll tell you what, this, this really blew my mind during that Columbia course I taught. So these are, these are grad students, um, in business. These are the future startup, uh, startups of the world. And at one point I told a story about the Blackberry storm. It was the first touchscreen Blackberry and how this phone was commissioned by Verizon uh, in order, to, and they wanted, they needed it to ship in time for the holiday season. Now the thing wasn't ready; it was filled with bugs, and I mean, hilarious, show-stopping Saturday Night Live style <laughs> bugs. Right. I mean, I mean, I would be like, I'd be addressing an email, and suddenly the body half of the screen, the body of the message, would be replaced by a live video feed from the camera. Like wow. what? I'm filming my feet what? in the middle of the, you know. <laughs> And uh, I mean, just really nutty things. So, and, and the company was really cagey and odd about it. They wouldn't acknowledge what was going on. They're like, uh, we will simply reiterate that BlackBerry's uh, dedication to customer quality is unparalleled. Yeah, I know, but there's bugs, you know. And, um, and then they shipped early. It was unfinished and they got creamed in the reviews and the product tanked and it was a famous disaster. Um, 
And so I, I told this to the students saying, look, you guys, whatever you do, never do that. Never be so bound to a shipping deadline that you're going to ship a terrible product because you've only got one first impression. I mean, yes, later they fixed that phone, but by then it was too late. No one would touch it. Um, and one young woman raised her hand and said, well, Professor Pogue, actually, uh, we've been told in, in our startup world that that's the beauty of software. You can always fix it later. So ship now, fix later. And we got into an argument there in the classroom. I'm like, wait a minute, are you telling me that you would knowingly ship something that's buggy for the sake? Of, and she's like, well, yeah, that's how the world works. You kind of use the first wave of buyers as your guinea pigs and they give you good feedback. And I just, I just didn't believe that. I mean, but that, that isn't, that in fact is the way the tech industry thinks. Yeah. And I mean, and there's definitely like a, a, a line to be drawn, right? Like it, it's the level of severity of the issues, you know, at least in this example, right? Where you're talking about a ship date and you want to hit a deadline. If it's unusable, <laughs> then that, then yes, let's postpone the date. If it's, you know, something that you can iterate on, which every product does over, over time, um, then yeah, like I, I, I get it, but that is a, that's a crazy, the fact that that was a collective, collective mindset that you encountered um, is, is pretty mind blowing to me. Yeah. And, and when you say there's a line to be drawn, you are more literally correct than you may even know. I, I once ran into a really strange thing with a new version of Microsoft Word that had come out, come out. I reviewed it for the Times and I, I sent the column into my editor and he said, I didn't get it. Send it again. And I'm like, that's weird. I sent it again and again. And he was getting angrier and angrier. He's like, the deadline has passed, Pogue. Where's the column? And I didn't understand why he wasn't getting these things. Um, later, I learned that there was a bug in this version of Microsoft Word where the main primary address for each addressee, the one in bold in the address book, was not the default. So if, you, if, you, if I wow. type... If I type Chris Denson and, it ha and your Gmail ad address that you hardly ever use happens to be first alphabetically, that's the one that would get put in instead of your real. So anyway, I asked the Microsoft PR guy about this. And he said, yeah, we, we knew about this. But you have to understand, inside Microsoft, as at any software company, we have a list of known bugs. And at a certain point, we draw a line. We literally draw a line after bug 122 or whatever. And we decide that we're going to fix the first 122 and everything else will have to wait. That's how this works. So I just found that staggering that, that every software company ships known buggy software. Well, what, I mean, what is the, then, I don't know, like, like if, I, if I parallel this to the music industry, when an album gets pushed back because the artist isn't ready or, you know, Kanye's album was delayed because of Chance the Rapper, you know, all these, there's this, and, and, and uh, granted, it's a very different product line, but what is what are these companies holding so true that they need to hit this ship date? Well, I would guess that, I mean, honestly, I've never worked inside one of these companies, so I don't totally know what I'm talking about. But um, clearly, there's a spreadsheet somewhere that projects how much revenue this company is going to make. And that depends on the product shipping on time. And that depends on everybody signing off on it, bugs and all. Um, and so it's it's this cycle, you know, it's not it's not. Uh, it's not a, a creative artist working on a painting who can take her sweet time. It, there's a lot riding on these things. Um, I, I've written a lot of computer books, how-to books, 
And I'll never forget, um, I was writing uh, a, a certain book on a popular subject, and the publisher told me, by the way, uh, you said you'd, you'd send the manuscript to us on December 1st. Just make sure that date doesn't slip. And I'm like, well, surely I have a couple days either way. And they said, no, no, no. Literally, you can't let this slip because we have ordered paper from the lumber mill, from the paper mills to print your book at the bindery. And we're ordering such a big first print run that they don't have room to put the paper indoors in the warehouse. So there will be sheets, reams of paper piled outside in the parking lot. And if it rains while we wait for (laughs) (laughs) Wow. There was this huge pyramid of things behind me that I didn't, I didn't count. I'm like, wait, if if I'm late with the book, the paper is going to get rained on and ruined. (laughs) You you will ruin the rainforest if you are, if you are like an hour late. That's Uh, exactly right. But no pressure, uh, but no pressure. so, So that's, I'm sure that's why it's, it's so important to ship something on time is because they have to meet their revenue goals and some of their publicly publicly held companies and you know the shareholders are depending on those revenue goal, revenue goals and and on and on. Yeah, and it's interesting because I think when you you know this idea of failure and there's a lot of cultural you know tendencies to think of failure as like fail as much as you can and it, you know and that also has a line <laughs> I'd like to think um, yeah and it sounds like almost even as you started out telling this example of the you know the 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 students and the the hey I don't want to rock the boat and lose my job it's almost like the fear of failure is the cause of failure. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you could argue that. And and there's another factor too which, that I've I've observed and I I haven't seen this in a lot of places. Um you have to look at why Apple was successful during the Steve Jobs reign, why they revolutionized, you know, industry after industry and came up after came up with so many hit products. Not all of them were hits, but a lot of them were giant mega hits. And if you think about the structure of Apple, they had this one guy they had Steve Jobs, and the entire rest of the company was nothing more than the execution arm of his imagination, right? So name another company, a big company, where the CEO is the inventor. I mean, they, they, there aren't any other companies like that. It doesn't exist. You know, uh, Sergey and Larry sort of came up with Google, but um, they're no longer doing the coding. I, I doubt they're, you know, any longer coming up with the actual product ideas. Um, this is a really unusual, uh, setup and it made me think about other situations where one tyrant, I mean, inevitably they're, they're called tyrants and, and aggressive, but one person at the top was responsible for everything. You think about, uh, James Cameron who writes and directs and draws the storyboards himself and edits himself and shoots behind the camera himself. I mean, I don't know if you remember Titanic, which was at the time the biggest movie ever to open. Of course. Um, it, was, it was said to be, you know, late and over budget and it was going to be a disaster. And who would watch a movie about a sinking ship? That's what they were saying before it came out. And they said this guy had a huge ego and that he didn't like to work with, you know, collaborators and, and so on. They, you always get this. And yet, and yet that singularity of vision often seems to result in giant colossal successes. This is why so many startups, this is why the original Google was successful when there aren't too many cooks, when it's not designed by committee, when the company isn't big and sprawling, it's often easier to push through a vision unchanged. 
and, and get it through without too many people, you know, adding clauses and piling on features and arguing with you. Uh, there's a certain nimbleness that comes from being a solo practitioner. So another, another syndrome that I've seen is, is that, that too many cooks syndrome in the tech world. No, definitely. And, and I think you, you speak to something that's really, um, at least on my mind, as far as when companies grow. Right. You know, when you start off from like, hey, I'm Joe Startup and we've got this really cool product. And like you said, like in the beginning, the innovation factor is, you know, 10 because there's less cooks in the kitchen. You have this vision board. But then when you become a billion dollar company, I'm curious if you have encountered, you know, any principles on this. But how do large companies continue to innovate? Right. Steve Jobs is gone. Um, and, you know, Apple is up and down in terms of popularity or, or choice. But, uh, you know, how does a person like that who is the, the, the helm of the vision leave behind a legacy and a guidebook and, the, and all the roadmaps and the blueprints for people to continue their vision? Well, so that's it. I mean, that is the craziest, most counterintuitive thing that the bigger and more powerful and successful a company gets, the less likely they are to innovate. And, and you can see that over and over and over. You know, a company gets big and entrenched, they become conservative. They, they don't want to stop doing what made them successful, which might have been innovative at the time. But once you're huge, trying something new seems like, you know, a death wish. Like, why would, why would we change the the formula until they have to. I mean, you look at, you know, Microsoft until a few years ago, it was just this crusty, entrenched group of people, you know, updating Office and Windows every year, sometimes terribly. Um, at, at a certain point, Microsoft sort of got, had his back to the wall and got a new CEO, by the way, and started doing like really innovative, creative great work. I mean, right. some of the stuff, I mean, even the Windows phone, I mean, I hate to say it, but that is a terrific phone. They were too late to the ball game, but it's not that they didn't innovate. They, they threw out the icons on a black screen metaphor that was the iPhone and Android phone. They came up with a completely new metaphor that really, truly worked. Um, it looks like they're going to kill off the Windows phone now. Just They were just so late to the game and there weren't apps and so on. But anyway, but the point is it's so easy to get big and find yourself unable to innovate. So the answer to the question, I think, um, is, I mean, some people solve it by starting startups within the big company. You know, they, they create these skunk works. That's happened at many companies, and that, that often pr produces good results. Right. Um, or to anoint, you know, a micro Steve Jobs and give him funding and staff and let him go. I love what Google does, you know, this 20% this time they enforce this, that every employee must take a day a week not to work on his own job, on his own project, a day a week to pursue some fanciful side project that, that she wants to do. Um, that's a, a really cool thing that a lot of companies are imitating that sort of forces innovation. That's, you know, Gmail, mega hit. That was somebody's side project. Um, and there are many other examples that came out of Google that were someone's side project. That Google now owns. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> um, let's say 
you know, let's let's call you Steve Jobs for a second, and you have to not that you would die. Yeah, uh, you know, I wish I wish you the best health, but let's say you have to hand over the reins to the David Pogue brand, right? Whether it's your tech column or what you're doing with PBS and Nova, um, what would you want? Like, what essence of that brand would you want to see continue? Well, I mean. That's a tough question. Even if I were running a tech company, I mean, I, th- I think it's a really tough tightrope to walk, no matter who you are. And I don't think I would be a good one. I don't think I would be a, <laughs> a good CEO. I'm I'm delighted to be the the guy who explains tech to the masses, not the one who has to uh, who has to invent it. But or or are you asking? Well, I would imagine I, like a, a scenario. Let's say you like you get a chance to create the David Pogue network, and and now you've got other writers who are working under you. It, uh, you know, and you or if for some reason you have to step away, and you, but you you know, hey, Dave, we'll gi- we'll give you a check to keep the column going, but you know, yeah, Lydia is yeah. going to step in. <laughs> I you know I actually um, I actually did I so in other words, what if what if. I wasn't head of a tech company, but, but who I am. And I wanted to, all right. So I actually did codify this at one point. I, I, in 1999, I started a a computer book series called the missing manual series. And these are meant to, to be sort of complete funny guides to all the, the products that don't come with manuals anymore, which is all of them. So, you know, iPhone and windows and Mac OS 10 and and so on. And uh, O'Reilly, the publisher wanted to expand the series to other authors. They wanted to grow the, the list of, of subjects. And so to do that, I had to try to distill everything that I've learned about presenting technology to laymen um, into a document. And it, there's, there, there's a long list of things that I think make things clearer. Um, for example, I mean, one is easy, jargon. Don't use jargon. Uh, for, every, for every jargon that you throw at me, I can come up with with a plain English word, you know, you don't, don't say price point. It's called the price. Uh, don't say, uh, I, I was watching some YouTube content. No, it's called video. You know, like there, there's this long list. <laughs> right. Don't say DRM when you could say copy protection. Uh, don't say functionality when you could say feature. So there's, there's the language you use. There's the voice you use. I always use second person. Like you should click this and be sure not to do this or you will lose your work. You know, I, instead of the user, um, I, I often joke that there are only two industries in the world that refer to their customers as users. Uh, <laughs> well, one, <laughs> one of them is the adult industry, I, I, I believe. Well, like drugs. And tech, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so there are certain ways, certain ways to do it. And I also, um, as you've heard, I do a lot of stuff. I do a lot. I have my hands in a lot of um, different projects. And, and so I'm also probably one of the most ridiculously over macroed, uh, people in the world. I use every time saving cheat available to technology mankind. So I have, you know, like the, the, if I write an article, what you see on the set on the website or the printed page, probably I typed only 40% of that because I have all these, I probably 450 macros. So I type the letter T and it types the word the. I type the letter BC and it types because. And I type WZ and that makes Windows, you know, like that. So just hundreds and hundreds of things that I type all the time at this point. At this point, if I were to use your laptop, I couldn't type on it. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> it has to be rigged the way mine is rigged. No QWERTY so, for David Pogue. Is that yeah, <laughs> that's right. So, you know, so I'd also want to pass on my, my efficiency techniques. Um, speaking of which, uh, I, although you left the New York Times, you have a New York Times bestseller. Um, did they throw any shade your way, by the way, when as your book was, <laughs> was coming up because you, you weren't there anymore? <laughs> the, oh, the Times actually gave it a good review. <laughs> You're like, phew! Yeah. Um, but what, I mean... Yeah, I love in the book, uh, at least on the, I'm going to call it the life hack version, but you also, there's a part of the book where you refer to like, hey, these aren't necessarily life hacks, especially the int- of the internet um, <laughs> breed. But I would love to just kind of explain, you know, your shortcuts and tips in the Pogue Basics uh, book series. Yeah, so this, this all started out uh, as a... Well, I'll, I'll just tell you the story. So uh, I was a young man. I was in a publisher's office in New York. I was waiting to see an editor. And I was watching the receptionist work on a Microsoft Word document. And she was trying to highlight a word in like one word that she had typed. And she, she was doing it by trying to drag across it with the mouse. And of course, as you know, if you go a fraction of an inch too high or too low, when you do that, you wind up highlighting the entire previous line or, or next line. And she'd go, gosh, darn it. And she would click to get rid of the highlight and try it again. And it made me crazy that she didn't know that you can double click on a word to neatly highlight just that word, any computer, any program, any time. And I finally jumped up and I'm like, why don't you just double click the word? And she's like, oh my God. And you know, I sort of, <laughs> I sort of realized that there, there's no boot camp for technology. There's no driver's ed that we all have to take to teach us these basic things. How would she know that? The only way she, anyone would teach her that is if, if, you know, if someone, she saw someone doing it and said, how do you do that? So we have to learn technology by osmosis. And a lot of it is these sort of granular little basic techniques. Like, you know, on a smartphone, when you get to the end of a sentence, you shouldn't switch keyboard layouts to find the period. You should just hit the space bar twice. That on any iPhone, Android, Windows, BlackBerry, anything, It'll make a period for you, then a space, and then capitalize the next letter. Hit the space bar twice. And I show people that, and they're like, oh, that is so cool. I'm like, how could you have gone your whole life without knowing that? That is, oh, man. So anyway, so I I eventually uh, did a TED Talk on this topic and, you know, had four and a half million views and became very popular. And people kept saying, "You you should do a book like this. So anyway, so the first book was just called Pogue's Basics now retro-named Pogue's Basics Tech. And that is 250 of these little basic things that you think everybody knows about technology, and they don't. Um, and so then uh, this, this past Christmas, we came out with a, a sequel, uh, the one you're talking about called Pogue's Basics Life, which is more life-hacky stuff. Um, and there are, some, I mean, there are some really great ones in there. I mean, the, the classic case, and maybe about half, half of your listeners know this one, is that on the dashboard of your car, there's a little arrow pointing either to the right or to the left, showing you which side of the car the gas tank is on. So if you're in a rental car and you're pulling into the you know, gas island, you don't have to guess which side to pull up to. It's, it's on the gas gauge there. But there are hundreds of things like that. My, my favorite one is that if you wear glasses, and once you're over 40, you probably will, um, and you find yourself without them, like in a restaurant, uh, or in the shower in a hotel, and you're trying to tell which one is the shampoo bottle, um, you can make a tiny pinhole with your, by curling your thumb up against your fore, uh, forefinger 
make a tiny hole that you hold right up against your face, against your eye, and incredibly, you can suddenly read without glasses. It's, it's the coolest, it's the pinhole camera technique. The crazy thing is I just did it right now, and I was like, oh, yeah, I can read this it, water bottle. It works, right? <laughs> it, it totally works. So uh, even, uh, you know, uh, obviously you're a genuinely curious person. Um, you've learned how to teach people these, the, you know, how to do the most basic things. How did you bridge the gap from tech to like these really weird, uh, you know, pinhole in the shower type things? <laughs> like, is this part, the other part of your day? You're like, oh, let me see how else I can do it. <laughs> like, did, well, you, I did you do the pinhole thing? Did you do it? You're like, oh, I did it works for me, so I'm going to put it in a book. <laughs> well, it, the, the sequence was, I mean, I, I, I sort of, from the, from the Broadway teaching computers days, I sort of became a, a teacher. You know, that, that became my favorite thing, and, and especially on tech, because, I mean, let's tie it all together here. Tech, when done right, is magical. And so I sort of got credit for being Dumbledore, right? Like I, people, I would show people some cool thing their, their phone could do or camera or whatever. And they'd be like, oh man, that's cool. Thank you. You know, like I was the, the knower of the wisdom. And I mean, that's a feeling I enjoy. So, and, and clearly it, it's profitable too, because, you know, I was writing these computer books and someone was buying them. So when the publisher asked for a sequel to the tech book, I realized that I, I like to do that showing off teaching in all areas. And a lot of the things in Pogue's Basics life uh, are indeed my own. Um, actually, a bunch of them came from my mom. And then a lot of them are not mine at all, but, but shared wisdom, you know, passed through uh, the internet or, or friends or my wife or whatever, that my, my goal there was just to screen them out, test them, and to present them the right way. Um, illustrate them. So yeah, so the fundamental drive is just, I like teaching. I like getting credit for changing someone's life, um, in, in, especially in these tiny, cool ways. Well, you're changing my life today. <laughs> um, when you talk about uh, this interesting area, when you talk about your mom gave you, you know, some, some of these tips, right? Um, I'm a parent and one of my favorite quotes is, uh, sometimes we try so hard to give our kids what we didn't have that we forget to give them what we did have. Um, what else did you pick up from your parents? Cause it, it, it you know, sounds like, you know, it seems like a, uh, you turned out pretty, pretty well. <laughs> so, and it sounds like you, you, there's some things that you might still abide by even in this world of technology, um, that are very much old school or analog or just a different way of thinking about things. Yeah, for sure. I mean, my, my mom, especially, and, and her father, my grandfather, you can clearly trace my lineage of the love of words and wordplay uh, there. I mean, oh, my God, we would spend car rides making puns and playing that game. Hinky pinky, you know, where I I tell you, I'm thinking of two words that rhyme and the equivalents are an evil priest. And then you have to guess sinister minister, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and we would write poems that would have rhyme and meter um, for, for everybody's birthday and anniversary. So it was a family heavily into words and, and music, actually. Everybody in my family sang, and we'd also spend boring car rides, you know, harmonizing with each other. Left a huge impact on me. Um, so the, the music clearly came from, from my parents, and, and so did the, the love of wordplay. And I guess in a certain way, uh, even, 
even the pre presentation style when I was when I was doing magic shows as a teenager, um, my mom would work with me to come up with the patter, you know, the the script that you say when you're presenting the trick, and she always stressed how important it was to be clear. Like if you did a cool magic trick and the audience wasn't prepared for what they were about to see, they would literally not know what you just did. Like, wait, I don't get it. Did something just change? You know, so you have to set up the trick and then do the trick and then tell them what trick just happened, that kind of thing. So she put in me a sense of presentation. And I use that to this day too, whether it's on stage or, you know, on TV or, or in writing. That's, that's phenomenal. Um, and then you you are also a parent, right? Um, and I, I'm curious as to how you balance out or if you do, you know, your, your kid's exposure to technology versus, Hey, let's get out and go hiking and put the phones away. All right. And what, what's your, what's your approach to that? Yeah. I'm, I'm asked that a lot. Um, yeah, I've got three kids. They're now 18, 17 and almost 12. And you know, our, we, we heard of a piece of advice early on, uh, which is put the computer in a public place. Don't, don't let have kids have computers in their room. I mean, Obviously, when they're 16, 17, 18, it's a little bit different. But younger kids, put the computer in the kitchen, put the computer in the TV room or whatever. And the, the idea there is you're passing by. You can take a glance at what they're doing. And so they feel loosely supervised. And that's, that's proven to be a great rule. And the other great rule is moderation in all things. I mean, you, you just can't go wrong. I, <laughs> my, my little guy used to make this really difficult for me. Um, he would be doing stuff. He used to love the iPad when it when it first came out. And I'd be like, okay, Jeffrey, that's that's enough technology. Now it's time to to do something creative or you know to go outside or or to, to play some music. And he'd be like, but dad, look. And what he'd been doing on the iPad is he he would use uh one of these apps that lets you make animations. Or he he had made a puppet show with, you know, digital paper cutouts and recorded the voices himself and made the move around, or he would be in garage band writing music. And I would be like, how, how can I take that away from it? <laughs> right. Technology itself unto itself is not evil. It's what you're doing with the technology. You know, if, if the technology is leading this kid to read and write music and, and create art and, and make puppet shows, I mean, what kind of parent would I be to take that away? So he used to prevent th present this really tough catch 22, you know. So anyway, so moderation in all things. And what is it that they're doing with the technology? I think that's a, a larger point. Very true. Um, so when you first started, <laughs> uh, kind of with your reviews and things, the world was moving a little bit slower. <laughs> right than it is today, and I'm curious as to how you keep up. You know, or do you even bother? Do you kind of stay in your lane? Uh, is there a team Pogue that kind of jumps on board to say, "Hey, David, have you seen this thing?" And then you like you get a, a chance to do that. Like, what's your system for making sure you're staying relevant and, and up to date on the things that you should be talking about or covering? Well, I, I'm lucky at this point. Um, I you know my my name is on the radar enough that I am on every PR person's mailing list. So the largest source of information about new developments and new products is email pitches from PR people. Um, you know, we have a new MP3 toothbrush and, you know, here's this, uh, this digital notebook that you can erase by putting in the microwave and, and so on. 
And I, as to what I choose out of all that, I, I'm guided by my hiring editor at the, at the New York Times in 2000. He said, you know, we, we want the main thing we don't want just to review. We want you to put the thing into context. Is it the first, the best, the smallest, the lightest, the fastest? Um, is it the cheapest? Why are we interested? Why is this thing news? Why, does it, why do we care? And so that, that idea of why do we care, uh, I mean, there's never been a single review that I've done that you can't answer that product. You know, I make sure that you know this is important because. Um, or if it's from a big company like Google or Microsoft, Apple, Samsung, Amazon, um, sometimes the answer is this product isn't needed. And it's a company who thinks it's important, but it turns out not to be. And that's why it's important. <laughs> if you know what I'm saying. Um, so yeah, so so I do that. And then I go to all the conferences. I read all the websites. I get a bunch of magazines. So yeah, my radar is is always out there. Um, I have I have no one else uh, helping me on the creative or, or side, but I do have a, an incredible, incredible uh, personal assistant who will do research for me or round, do the product ordering and returning for me um, and generally make my life possible. That is shout out to that, to that individual, Jan, Jan, shout out to Jan, um, <laughs> Jan, the man, if you watch uh, Silicon Valley, <laughs> no, it's a whole other ball of wax. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, now you, now you, now you throwing me off, but I think when, you know, it's interesting because I think when people envision your day, it's like, oh, I'm tinkering with gadgets all day and, you know, messing around with stuff and, and turning switches on and off. Um, what, what is a typical day like for you? Like, is it, is it that chock full of like information digestion and output or, you know, or do you find ways to kind of take a break and breathe and, yoga yourself or, you know, what, what happens in the David Pogue day? You know, it's, it's pretty insane. In, in my younger days, I used to do two things. I would do the Broadway thing and I would, I would be writing. I wrote user manuals for software companies on the side. And if you think about those two things, the one is very social and very collaborative, the Broadway thing, right? You're with a team. You can't do any thing without consulting other people. And then writing is very solitary. You have complete control, but you're also by yourself. So to me, those two things were a perfect pair of jobs. You know, I, would, I don't think I would enjoy a nine-to-five job. Uh, I've never had a nine-to-five job, ever. Um, and I, I think I'd, I'd probably go out of my mind. I, I need both solitude and collaboration, really. So, um, so to answer the question, my jobs are all over the place. You know, for example, the, the books that I do, I, I still keep the iPhone Windows and MacBooks updated every year, and they all come out every fall because that's when the new versions of Windows, iPhone, and Mac OS X come out. Um, so in the fall, I'm very busy writing, and a lot of that's on planes or in hotel rooms. And then you know during the spring and summer, when there's a, a Nova special to, to be hosting, I'm out shooting that, as I am right now. I'm, I'm right now in San Francisco making a Nova special about the future of batteries. And so we're, we're filming every day and doing interviews and running tests and stuff like that. Um, and then through all of this, I'm keeping up with my Yahoo column. I, I write a, a tech column every Thursday. And, um, you know, so I'm, I'm frequently planning ahead for that and taking things with me. I, I have in front of me uh, the first Internet of Things jump rope. So it communicates <laughs> wow. it with, with your, yeah, I know it communicates with your phone on, you know, what, how many jumps you're doing and what speed and so on. But what's really cool is it has a, a strip of LEDs in the middle of the rope that 
as they're flying in front of your face, they light up in the, in the patterns to spell out the, a number, which is your counter. Um, you know, you know that's those brilliant. Th- Isn't that cool? That is, yeah, that's dope. I it's like that. I, now I want you- one. Thank you, David Pogue. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's so, that's incredible. But I mentioned that because it's portable. So I, I picked something. I knew I'd be away from home this week, so I picked something that I could stuff in my bag and review on the road. So anyway, so the answer is there's no there's no typical day, and I don't really observe evenings or weekends or holidays. I'm I'm kind of going all the time or taking a break whenever I need it. Um, which, which makes for a very, uh, a very convenient lifestyle. Um, speaking of like really cool products, it, uh, you know, the question I was going to ask you earlier is my, my parallel was that a lot of record labels turned down Eminem until Dr. Jace said, Hey, I'll work with you. <laughs> and, and then look what happened. Um, have you missed an Eminem? Like, was there something that came across your desk? You're like, ah, oh, this is some crap. And then the next thing you know, like it blows up and it's the, you know, the most amazing thing since sliced bread. I, I've definitely uh, been late on some stuff. Um, there were, you know, there's a period where every, everyone and his sister was coming up with a social network and I'd written about Facebook, but it took me a long time to get wise to Twitter, to, to recognize it as the force that it was going to be. Me so too. Me like, too. Really? <laughs> yeah, no, because because you know it's like oh a new it was called a microblogging platform when it like yeah was, right and, exactly. like, and I was like that sounds stupid like, <laughs> like and you this. know what Twitter is darn confusing I mean all you know the 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 codes and the periods and the and the the hashtags and the at signs I mean it's it is not self evident to a beginner you know direct direct messages oh okay so I can send you a direct message if you're following me but if you send it to me and I'm not following you then I can't see the me- like what. Um, so yeah, I was late on that. I, I would say, uh, that my assessment of things, if you look back over the record, like this is a good product, this is a bad product, uh, has rarely been wrong. I mean, I've, I've never called a dog product great or great product a dog. Um, and maybe that's because any idiot could do that. Right. <laughs> maybe it's just not so hard. Um, but, but in general, um, but, and there have been things that I thought should succeed and didn't, and I have there have been things that I, I thought probably wouldn't succeed and they, they scrabbled along and, and did, but by and large, my, my assessments have been pretty, pretty good. Anything comedically hilarious that came across your desk where you're like, why would you even invent this? Oh, <laughs> where do I begin? How many hours you got? Uh, there are so, there is such absurdity. Um, I still, I still talk about uh, the akimbo box. So this was well before YouTube. Um, and it was a set-top box that uh, had as its dream, you could summon any TV show ever broadcast on command. And you know, now we have Hulu and YouTube, and you can, you can basically do that. But, but this was you know 2002 or something, and all of that was a twinkle in Silicon Valley's eye. And the, I mean, it, it's such a cool, addictive idea. Well, wait a minute, I could watch... You know, did you see that I Love Lucy uh, last night? No, I missed it. But I'll go to my Akimbo box and watch it. Um, <laughs> the only problem was it was $300 for the box. And then there was a subscription price. It was like $10 a month to subscribe. And on top of that, you had to pay per show, like $3 per show. And you, you had 24 hours to watch it. And then it disappeared. Wow. And... The big one is they, they could not get any shows. They, they couldn't get the TV studios to jump, jump on board. Um, the TV industry was too burned by what had happened to the music industry when they got involved with the Internet. 
So the TV was like, we're not, we're not putting our shows online. That's crazy, crazy talk. <laughs> and so th- they wound up with, you know, the selection, I'm not kidding you, was like Turkish sitcoms and, and British movie trailers and, and things like that. Like that was your choice of stuff to watch on this box. And so that's a classic idea of a really cool idea that, no, the execution was just laughably bad. So the takeaway there is uh, watch Turkish sitcoms. <laughs> exactly. <And trust laughs> me, I had to. That's, that's how I reviewed this thing. Um, I mean, with your eye and your radar, um, have you considered the VC community? Have you like have you considered investing yourself? Have you made any investments? Does the VC community come to you and be like, "Hey, David, come here. Let me take you to dinner. What, what's what's coming?" Um, and, I, and how do you handle those situations? I, w- I would have thought that that would have been. Uh, a natural thing for for investors to to take out to dinner people who see a lot of tech like you know Walt Mossberg or, or me or, or whatever um, and you know it has never happened it has never happened it, it might be because uh, when I was at the Times and, and Walt was at the Wall Street Journal that 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 was considered a conflict of interest that that was an ethical no no to you know to take money or fancy dinners from somebody who's in the business of helping to build up products. Um, which you might review someday. So I, I don't know why that's that's never happened, and I've never I've never thought about investing myself either. Um, although now you put a a B in my brain about that. Boom! That's <laughs> what we do on Innovation Crush, man. Uh, <laughs> might be the next the next phase. That should be yeah. That, that's that, that'll be our offline chat. Yeah. Um, exactly. All right. I mean, you know, you know I, I honestly think from from what I know of the the venture capital world especially in tech is that it's it's really long hours and really stressful and not always so much fun so yeah you know, but i think you see this is where this is where uh, david poe gets to learn how to delegate right you go like all right hey i have a little bit of money or some interest and then you go like you and then let somebody else do the long hours on the the whole startup ecosystem all right well since you know so much about it you and i'll incorporate once we're done here all right uh, cool um don't hang up uh, <laughs> uh so one last question is you do not live in silicon valley or new york or chicago or la or any of these other sort of tech hot hotbeds um, what have you seen? And I, I think, again, we kind of preach to the choir because we're coastal and we assume like everybody's going to use, you know, Instagram, but you start, I think the more you venture into the middle of the country, things look a lot different. Um, and it sounds like you've, you, you're well-traveled or at least well-versed in sort of consumer behavior around technology. What, what kind of differences have you seen in the in middle of America or, or other, other regions of the country that we miss or uh, assume incorrectly? Well, I applaud you for wrapping this thing up with the biggest, most insightful point. This is not one country, right? I saw during the last elections, I saw this hilarious political cartoon. It was a map of North America and they had colored Canada and the coasts of the United States in blue and the middle lower part of America they had colored in red and the upper bluer part they labeled the United States of Canada and the middle part they called Jesus land. And it is so true that there, the, the people who live on the coasts, these, you know, progressive, liberal, uh, you know, media centric, tech centric uh, populations are quite different from 
the, the, the flyover states, as they're sardonically known. Um, and th they think differently. They work differently. I mean, people, many people in New York or Connecticut or California are shocked at the rise of Donald Trump, but they shouldn't be. That's, they're shocked because that's, that's a surprise to their country on the coast of the United States. Um, but it's not, you know, obviously somebody is supporting Donald Trump and, and ideas that, that the people on the, in the uh, blue coasts would, would find shocking. Um, and it's the same thing with technology. I, when I launched Yahoo Tech, I said, uh, there are, you know, at, at the announcement on CES, the unveiling of the site, I said, there are so many websites about technology. There's Gizmodo and Engadget and The Verge, and, and there's no shortage of them. But those are websites for techies by techies. They use jargon. They assume you know what's come before. Um, they're not written in particular with an eye toward entertaining and informing. Um, and I think there's a need for the other 80%. I think there's a need for people who are not techies. And that philosophy, as you now know, has, has served me very well. I think there's more of us than there are of them. I think there are more people who find technology overwhelming than there are people whose life revolves around technology. So I think that that principle, that those on the media-centric coasts in their echo chamber are not always in tune with what most people are like. Well said. Well said. I think we can also organize a trek across the country with some 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 uh, some Silicon Valley folks. Um, so a couple more things. One, uh, I'm going to need you to put your your deep knowledge hat on here for a second. Um, the the show is called Innovation Crush. I'm curious. Uh, outside of the the IoT jump rope, um, what is your current innovation crush? It can be something in your world. It can be something you saw on the freeway earlier today. It can be uh, you know an art exhibit you heard about. Um, but it, what is that one thing that you're like, oh my gosh, that was so awesome. I wish I could be a part of it, or I wish I could be a, have a piece of it again. Well, I I would say uh, it's it's really a category more than one product. It is the explosion in the last 12 months of useful artificial intelligence. I mean, we all know about the self-driving cars. We all know that there are now drones that you cannot crash. Um, we all know that DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Administration, our government conducted a robotics competition last year where people had to build humanoid robots that could have gone into the Fukushima power plant and saved the day because they were shaped like people and could walk over rubble and turn winches. And I mean, th there have never been bipedal walking robots, except in science fiction, until like four years ago. And all of a sudden, they're a real thing. I mean, you, you look at the, and, and then, you know, the Amazon Echo, and now Google has their voice-activated home appliance. Suddenly, artificial intelligence is a real thing, making possible machines and features that used to be pure science fiction. And I'm, I just could not be more exciting to me. And I'm, I'm amazed that you don't hear a lot of people connecting the dots between these things, between robots, drones, self-driving cars. I mean, every single category of, of technology, uh, transportation, housing, it's all being touched by this smartness. And yeah. so far, no sign of a robotic uprising. Not yet. It's still, it's still early. 
<laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of people are, I mean, I, th- I think the reason you probably haven't heard a lot about it, I think most people are still kind of like fearful or skeptical, or you've got the um, Stephen Hawking's of the world. It's like, Hey, be, be careful. Um, That's true. There's a, you know, there's still a lot of skepticism around it, but you're right. I mean, I just got an Amazon echo and it's like my favorite thing right now. I'm like, <laughs> isn't I, it completely awesome? Ex- I talk to it more than I talk to my family. Uh, um, like, Hey, I, Alexa, you want to go out on a date? <laughs> like every, I mean, people were talking about the internet of things, you know, this ability to, to add network ability to everyday household objects. But the reason I think it hasn't really taken off with consumers is that it's still, I mean, look, let's face it. The remote control for the television in the seventies or whatever was a hit because it added convenience, right? right? It saves you from getting out the couch. So that's the promise of all these thermostats and door locks and, and window shades and car starters. That's the promise. But in fact, all of it is inconvenient in that each one requires a different app and they don't talk to each other. And it's very clumsy to open one app to adjust the lights and another app to change the thermostat. The beauty of voice control, like the Amazon Echo, is it eliminates the inconvenience of Internet of Things. You can now say, make the room 70 degrees. You can now say, you know, close the blinds. And, and that is sort of the stealth beauty of these, you know, the Google, Google Home and Amazon Echo. And today I read that, that Apple is flirting with this idea, too, of a, a Siri for the home. It is that it eliminates the inconvenience from a whole category of things that were supposed to be convenient. Yeah. And, and I think you hit the nail on the head. It's uh, I've always, my theory has always been whoever can create the, uh, the, the envelope, you know, the, the one touch point it will win. And I think uh, like, you know, a brand like under armor has done a really great job of saying, Hey, we have wearable technology and we have apparel. He's like, I don't care if you have a jawbone or misfit or, you know, a run keeper or whatever, it will speak to the under armor system and the under armor platform. And so they're, they're, they're batting a thousand because, you know, they said, Hey, we're going to open it up and let it come one, come all, Uh, you know, very wise. Very wise. Um, So last but not least complete this phrase for me. Uh, Innovation to me is. Um, daring to change the way it's done. I mean, every great innovation, you know, think of, you know, the iTunes music store or, you know, an iPhone that a phone that doesn't have buttons, you know, it's the courage to reject the common wisdom that we've, the way we've done it for years. Boom. I like it. Um, thank you for, for joining me today. This is, this has been a fan, a fantastically enlightening. All right, thanks, man. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> and by the way, I know I know you're on everybody's radar, but um, where do people go to find you? Where do you want to direct people to? Uh, DavidPogue.com. That's sort of the hub of all my activities. All right, the David Pogue hub. All right, everybody. Uh, this has been another installment of Innovation Crush, and we will talk to you next time.